Well, friends, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, we're going to be in Acts chapter 8 this morning. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26, and we're going to go through the end of the chapter, uh, verse 40. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26, and we'll go through verse 40. Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. What happens to the man or woman who goes their entire life without ever hearing of Jesus? What happens to the man or the woman, the boy or the girl who goes all of their days, their entire life and never hears of the saving work of Jesus Christ? What happens to that man? What happens to that woman? For some of us, that question conjures up images of missionaries going way past the edges of civilization, deep into the jungles or out into the frontier. For others of us, we recognize that question comes a little bit closer to home. I remember, remember just a few years ago, we were tailgating the home football games at Christopher Newport University. And uh, we, uh, it was fraternity, fraternity, sorority, fraternity, us, fraternity, sorority. I mean, it was a fish out of water type of thing. And there we are. And a student walks up to get a deep fried Oreo and we strike up a conversation. And uh, he says, you know, I, I grew up in Northern Virginia my family comes from the Sikh religion, uh, which is, uh, has uh, roots in India. He said, I've never really known a Christian. I've never owned a Bible. I've, I've never been to a church. He, he didn't live far away. He grew up in Northern Virginia, was attending Christopher Newport University. Uh, so for some of us, that question of what happens to the man or woman who never hears uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, we, we think far away. For others of us, we might recognize that that describes our next door neighbor. What happens to them? Well, the Bible answers that question in a number of ways. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1 says that such people are, he uses the phrase, without excuse because of the testimony of nature. Peter says that when it comes to the judgment seat of uh, a God, no one, he uses the phrase, will be spared because of the reality of sin. Jesus put it very clearly, no one comes to the Father but through me. Now, Scripture is equally clear that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't say might be saved. I've looked at the Greek. It says will be saved, shall be saved. The, the Bible is clear that um, uh, all who put their trust in the Lord shall not be put to shame. Jesus said, anyone who comes to me, he put it in the negative. He said, no one who comes to me will in any way be turned away. In other words, we can only be saved through Christ, but we can always be saved through Christ. So we can see with John that vision and revelation of a multitude from every tribe, language, nation, and tongue gathered around the throne of Christ. So what happens to the man or woman who dies never hearing the gospel? Now, for many people, this is an idea with which they wrestle. It's one of those questions that they just kind of intellectually mull over. But for the obedient Christian, it's more than just an idea. It's a governing reality. This governing reality has led many Christians over the years to uh, uh, go to the foreign mission field. I think about that, that uh, lyric, the, the line that we just sang about, I want you more than the air I breathe. And I think about how many missionaries in the course of Christian history have lived that out. Look, there, there's a, a, a lot of funny business when it comes to the Southern Baptist Convention. But one of the things I absolutely love about being Southern Baptist is our emphasis on sending missionaries around the world. 
We, we are one of, if I understand things right, the only organizations in the world in which our missionaries aren't required to raise their own support because our churches are so passionate in giving that we want to send them. We have something called the Cooperative Program. So I think of missionaries like Sam James, who we had preach here in this pulpit uh, just last week. He's 50 years older than me. He was the very first Southern Baptist missionary in Vietnam in the 60s. Many of us are familiar with that part of the world and that part uh, part of the kind of calendar. We recognize the the weight of that. Dr. James is one of those guys, one of my sons, after he preached the first time, said, man, dad, I really liked him. And he looked at me, he said, no offense, but I liked him a lot more than you. He, he said, let's just be honest, Dad, he's got better stories. And he thought for a moment, he said, you just haven't been around long enough to get those stories. So I think of Dr. James, I think of the many other men and women. So for them, that question is not just an idea, it's a governing reality for countless others unnamed. It's led them to be obedient in reaching their neighbors for Jesus. I want to talk to you this morning about getting the gospel to people who don't have it yet. Getting the gospel to people who don't have it yet. And that might be the person who lives on the edges of civilization. It might be your next door neighbor. What if God intended to use you to reach others? I'm convinced as I read the book of Acts and I read the rest of the Bible, I'm convinced that God intends to use every single believer to reach other people for Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, I want you to know that there are no bench warmers in the kingdom. None of us are riding the bench watching others play the game. You're meant to be on the field. And look, if you're anything like me, sometimes that means you're going to fumble the ball or you're going to get tackled or you're going to swing and miss. But you're meant to be on the field. You're meant to be playing the game. The majority of Christians will go their entire adult life without ever seeing somebody come to know Jesus who didn't. They're not playing the game. God intends to use you. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that I'm glad you're here. I would love to sit down and hear your story. And I want you to know that God is pursuing you in Christ. He is pursuing you in Christ. I want you to know that John 3.16 is true. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have everlasting life. It's true. So this morning we're going to look at an episode from the life of a man named Philip. Philip is a man that God used to get the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to many people. Now, there are two things up front you need to know about Philip. Number one, Philip was primarily a servant. He was a servant. He he was the type of guy that was more likely to be serving in the back of the room than be up front on the stage in the front of the room. When the early church in Jerusalem had a logistic problem that threatened their unity, Philip was one of the guys that they called uh, uh, to help solve it. Some of us might think of the... um, the great poet Vanilla Ice, who had a line, if you got a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Right? That Philip understood that kind of line of thinking. He was like, okay, I'm, I'm in. I want to help protect the unity of the church. He was a servant. Now, people like that are normally, they're not fighting for the spotlight. They normally don't end up on the stage or at the front of the room because they're at work in the back of the room. So if you're tempted to think, well, I don't know if God would use me to get the gospel to other people. I mean, that's for like extroverts. That's good. That's one of those things that's really good for a preacher to say, but like, okay, preacher boy, that's good for you, not for me. Like, let me, I'm going to sit in the back of the room and help. No, Philip was a servant and God used him 
to get the gospel to many people. So if you're thinking, okay, I'm not, I'm not an evangelist, I'm more of a servant, so was Philip. The second thing you need to know about Philip is that he loved all types of people. The problem that he helped solve in the church was in part a result of cultural differences. He would also, and they called Philip to kind of help solve that problem and protect the unity of the church. He would leave Jerusalem and take the gospel to Samaria, which is something very few Christians were willing to do. Pastor Tony Morita writes this, Philip's heart is open wide to all types of people and he reflects the heart of God in this way. In Acts 6, we see him caring for widows just as God cares for them. In Acts 8, he displays a Christ-like love for the despised Samaritans, even though most people considered them ethnically impure heretics. You can see that in John 4. Then in our text in today, he displays Christ's love for the nations by caring for the Ethiopian man with respect. He goes on to ask this question, what makes a good missionary? Loving people, reaching beyond barriers. So Dr. Marita summarizes, let's determine to follow Philip's model rather than Jonah's. So friends, as God is advancing his kingdom, as God is making his love in Christ known to a hurting world, as God is opening the eyes of the hearts of men and women, boys and girls all over the world, what if he used you? That's the question I want you to ask as we look at Philip's story. So I'm gonna read the passage and then we will see uh, three encouragements, three factors. Acts chapter eight, beginning in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I? unless someone guides me. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask, I ask you, does, this, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So I wanna talk to you this morning about getting the gospel to those who don't have it yet. And what if God intended to use you just as he used Philip? So I, I want you to see three motivations in personal evangelism, three encouragements, three reasons to pursue personal evangelism in this story. Number one, God is orchestrating divine meetings. God is orchestrating divine meetings. Luke begins with the account, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, 
And we're left to wonder how. Luke doesn't tell us. Did Philip see it written in the clouds? Did Philip just feel an, did he hear an audible voice? Did he feel an impression in his heart? Did somebody come up to him after church and say, hey, I just really feel like the Lord put this on my heart. I feel like I, I need to tell you this. Did he, did he look down in his cereal and see it written? By the way, if, if, if that's your mode of discerning God's will, A, I wanna have a conversation with you, but B, make sure you don't use Cheerios. Right, because all they ever say is, ooh, you can turn the bowl around and it doesn't change. I've, I've tried, right? So, okay, we don't know how, we don't know how Philip discerned this. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, and we're left to wonder how. But Luke's point is not to give us a lesson on how to discern the Spirit's guidance. His point is that God was the one orchestrating this meeting. So in verse 26, an angel of the Lord said to Philip. In verse 29, the spirit said to Philip. In verse 39, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And we're not meant to get caught up in, okay, well, what's the difference in the angel and the spirit and the spirit of the Lord and the spirit here and how? That's not the point. The point is that God was the one in control. Luke doesn't comment on how these things happened, but he makes it undeniable that they happened. God was orchestrating this meeting. Commentator David Peterson explains references to an angel and the spirit highlight the fact that the initiative in this mission is entirely with God. The initiative in this mission is entirely with God. And we see that throughout the entire book of Acts. There's not one moment in the book of Acts where the gospel advanced primarily because the church got together and came up with a really good mission strategy. There's not one point in the book of Acts where the, the gospel advanced primarily because the church chose the perfect uh, songs or scripture readings or, or, or the sermon was that funny. It's, it's always because God is in control. The initiative is entirely with God. Divine meetings. God sovereignly scatters his people who preach and teach about Jesus wherever they go. So Luke wants you to know that the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ is on his throne right now. He's advancing his kingdom in countless ways through people just like you as he orchestrates divine meetings in which he intends to use you as a missionary. James Montgomery of Boyce explains, there are no accidents in the life of God's people. He placed you on that team. He placed you in that neighborhood. He put you in that family and connected you with those people. Sometimes theologians will speak of the sovereignty of God, the fact that he is in absolute control, or they'll talk about the providence of God, that he is orchestrating all things according to his purposes. So we clearly see that God placed Philip here on purpose. And he did the same with you. He did the same with you. What if you lived with the conviction that God had placed you there for a divine meeting? What if you believe that God put you in that office? What if you believe that God put you on that team? What if you believe that God put you there for a purpose? It's an overgeneralization, I recognize it, but it's, it's similar to the, the difference between men and women in shopping, right? You've probably seen images of the map of the, the woman who goes in to shop and she browses and every aisle is thoroughly covered and considered and every item is measured and weighed appropriately. Whereas the man walks straight in to the object for which he went in and then walks straight out, 
right? You, 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 see, you, see, the, you see the difference. We, we, what if you lived with the conviction that God had placed you for a divine meeting? Now, I'm not saying it's bad to browse in some parts of life, to slow down and to enjoy, but you're meant to live on purpose. You're meant to make much of Christ. So that family with young kids that you just met or just reconnected with, invite them to church on July 4th. Again, we're going to have a petting zoo. Why not invite them? Last night, Lauren and I went on a walk. Took the dog, went for a walk, and uh, as we were walking through a, a, a friend's neighborhood, we were coming up on the, our friend's old house. They just moved out, and uh, we see a family out in the front yard, and Lauren jokingly said, well, maybe, maybe we should stop them and say, hey, you live where our friends used to live, and we kind of laughed, and we're walking by them. We say, hey, nice, nice to meet you. Good to see you, and the guy says, hey, I've, I've got a question for you. The homeowners association in this neighborhood do you know, like, it, will it cover the, and he asked us about an object. We said, well, actually, we don't even live in this neighborhood. We live in that neighborhood. But, but man, you know, nice to meet you. And we stood there and we talked for a, a little while and their son was doing bike tricks in the front yard. So we talked to him. And then I hear, I just, I hear the sound of a skateboard in their backyard. I'm like, I know that sound. And I said, hey, is that the sound of a, like, do I hear a skateboard in your backyard? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. Um, our, we've got a son in our backyard, he loves skateboarding. I said, well, man, we just, we built a half pipe in our backyard. Don't, don't tell the city. Um, uh, and um, I found out after the fact, but we built a half pipe in our backyard. Man, if your son would ever like to come over and skate and just hang out, man, wide open, like we would love to. And we stood there for a good 10 minutes just talking. They just moved to the area from Southern California. And they're getting settled. And so Laura and I are walking away. I say, all right, you know what we need to do now, right? We need to revisit, invite them to July 4th, make sure they've got our phone numbers and just connect. God placed you there. That friend with whom you've wanted to have a spiritual conversation, but you just weren't sure how to go about it. Ask him, hey, I, I went to church this weekend and that made me, I got to think, do you have a faith? Like, where are you at on your spiritual journey? What, what, what's, what's God doing in, in your life? Have the conversation. God is advancing his kingdom through men and women who are be obedient in the divine meetings he has set up. That leads us to point number two. God is using available people. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. Now consider for just a moment what Philip left. Philip had a thriving ministry in Samaria. If you go back just a couple of verses, you'll see that Philip was being used in a mighty way in Samaria. Things were working. But Philip knew that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our, our thoughts. And so when God said, go, Philip had his bags packed. He was an available man. Are you available for God to use? It's a simple question. Are you available for God to use? You're either available to Jesus or you're in opposition to Jesus. There's no third way. There's no middle ground. There's no such thing as neutrality towards Jesus. Jesus is not a politician vying for your vote or working for your approval. He is a king commanding your obedience. You're either available to him or in opposition to him. So which is it? 
Philip had submitted to God's leadership in his life. He belonged to God and was available to God. Whether that meant serving widows in the church, preaching the gospel in hated Samaria, or leaving a thriving ministry to follow God's call to a desert road on the way to Gaza. If we skip to the very end of our passage, we see that the Lord carries Philip away to Azotus. Verse 40 says, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Your life may be marked by towns and places. The military took you to basic training in then to this station and then this city and then on to that station in that city. Or it may be marked by many seasons in the same town. But is your life marked by the thread of preaching the gospel? Is your life marked by the thread of helping people come to know Jesus? The point is not that you would become a preacher or a full-time evangelist or go into full-time ministry. The point is that you would be obedient to Jesus in all of life wherever you go. That you would consider yourself available. And to borrow another word from uh, the missionary Nate Saint who was killed by those he went to reach, expendable. We're all expendable. Nate understood that as he went to the, the, the beach on which he would be killed. He didn't know that, but as he was packing up the plane, him and Jim Elliott and a, a couple of other uh, missionaries, uh, Nate Saint's little son uh, came up to him and said, Dad, I have a, a question. If they attack you, will you use your gun to defend yourself in that situation? And um, he said, no, son, I won't. And he said, here's why. I'm ready for heaven and they're not. See, he, he understood he was willing to pay the price to get the gospel to them. Are we willing to walk across the room? Are we willing to have the uncomfortable conversation? Are we willing to bring the topic up? Philip knew that God was on a mission. And so his availability to God was not just, hey, God, I'm available to receive your blessings, but God, I'm available for you to use in your mission. We want to be available to God's ministry to us, but are we available for God's ministry through us? Now, this Ethiopian man needed more than a friend in his chariot. He needed an encounter with someone who could explain the truth of the gospel with the Spirit's help. That's point number three, that God is saving people through Jesus. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Again, the sovereignty and the providence of God on full display here. The man lived in Ethiopia, which was the whole region of the upper Nile. He had at some point heard about the God of Israel and come to believe that this God of Israel was the one true God. This most likely would have been a tremendous step of faith in his culture and his position. He would have been in the minority as a worshiper of this God. But what we see is that he, he, the intensity of his devotion was so strong that he said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem to worship. And God's going to so orchestrate things that Philip meets him on a desert road on his way home. This man was a believer in the one true God. We, we see that the genuineness of his devotion revealed in the statement that he had made a considerable journey to Jerusalem to worship, probably took place in the court of the Gentiles at the temple, though his involvement would have been limited. He could come to the temple, but because he was a eunuch, he could not enter it. The genuineness of his faith is further illustrated by the fact that on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. It's a measure of both his enthusiasm and his wealth that he possessed his own copy of a biblical book. So his journey to Jerusalem left him with a hunger to know the scriptures better, but with no one to guide him. Remember the question that he asked? How can I understand this if I have nobody to guide me? 
There are people in your sphere of influence right now who own a Bible, they want to read the Bible, they want to understand the Bible, but they don't have anyone to guide them. Again, that's why we've started that, that uh, community group going through David Helm's book, one-to-one Bible reading. The spirit said to Philip, go, join him. And so he, he goes and he, he asks him, do you understand? No, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he's reading the prophet Isaiah. We have a summary of what he read, but we can rest assured that on a long, slow journey, he read much more than what is recorded here. He was reading from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. He was reading the chapter that portrays Jesus as the suffering servant who came to be our savior. So he would have read that Jesus took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He would have read how Jesus was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, how we all like sheep have gone astray, but that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And you can imagine the eunuch as he's in that chariot asking questions in his own mind and in his own heart. What do I do with my guilt? What do I do with my shame? What do I do with my sorrow? Who is this suffering servant who will take on all my iniquities? Theologian I. I Howard Marshall comments on verse 35. Here then is the climax of the conversation as Philip takes his point of departure from the passage and declares the good news of Jesus. Philip points him to Jesus because he knows that God is saving people through Christ. And the Ethiopian man responds in faith to the word about Christ. As they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, some of us might think, whoa, where did baptism come up? And we don't know. Again, we're not given all of the details. Philip taught how the scriptures pointed to Jesus and then he taught them how we are to respond in faith and in obedience, part of which includes baptism. Baptism signified that the eunuch believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was buried with Christ and raised to walk in the newness of life. I appreciate how the scholar and preacher Adrian Rogers explains, baptism is your way of saying, Jesus' resurrection has my name on it. it. Has my name on it. So friends, have you heard of the gospel? Have you responded to it? Are you obedient to it? Now I wanna make the point very clearly that this man was a eunuch, which has a number of implications, the least of which makes this a potentially um, odd passage to choose for Father's Day. This man was surgically unable to be a father. He was, as one theologian said, the ultimate outsider when it comes to Judaism, inadmissible to the temple. So this man would have traveled to Jerusalem to worship, He would have been allowed in the outside court, but because he was a eunuch, as uh, described in Deuteronomy, he was not allowed inside the temple, inadmissible. What's going on here? Alan Thompson explains, in view here are the promises to include outcasts among the people of God. We just sang, God, fulfill your promises. When you do on that day, I can't wait to see it. This is particularly seen in the overwhelming emphasis in the passage on the identity of the man Philip speaks to as simply the eunuch. In verse 27, the man is said to be an Ethiopian, an important official, and a eunuch, but it's only that last designation as a eunuch that is continued for him throughout the rest of the account. 
Now, an attentive reader wondering what Luke is trying to highlight about the identity of this man should be wondering why he is so often called the eunuch. Why didn't he refer to him as the Ethiopian? Why didn't he refer to him as the the, the court official? Well, because there's an emphasis on the fulfillment of Isaiah throughout Acts. And it's most likely that the emphasis on the man as the eunuch is meant to recall the promises for eunuchs in Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56 looks forward to the time of God's salvation when the exclusion of those with defects from the assembly of God's people, which is laid out in Deuteronomy 23, will be overturned. This salvation will be a time with the Lord when the Lord says, let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people and let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree, Isaiah 56. The Lord says to eunuchs that to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. The eunuch is asking the same question that everyone you meet is asking. If there is a God, would he have anything to do with me? If there is a God, I can give you a thousand reasons why he wouldn't love me. But Philip as he goes to the eunuch, proclaims to him, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In Christ, all are welcome. So part of our takeaway here is that God may call you to reach those who consider themselves unreachable, inadmissible, exiles to the kingdom. But I would argue that that's not Luke's main point. Uh, R.C. Sproul Jr. points out that if your key takeaway when you read that Jesus hung out with sinners is that you should hang out with sinners, you're confused on who you are in the story. When you read a passage that says Jesus hung out with sinners and you think, oh, I should hang out with sinners. No, 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 no. You've got a character problem. You're You're not Jesus. You're the sinner. In the same way as Luke's making the point that God is using Philip to reach the eunuchs, his point is not necessarily that you need to be Philip. His point is that you are the eunuch. We're not merely called to reach the eunuch who is excluded from the temple. We're called to remember that we are the eunuch, excluded from the presence of God because of our sin. But we are welcome in Jesus Christ. So what would it look like for God to use you to reach others for Jesus? The first and foundational step is for him to reach you for Christ. So has that happened? Are you this morning trusting Christ as your savior? I want you to grab the communion elements that are in the uh, pew in front of you. Don't open them yet.